0: Control is a, a fine, fine yeah. institution in our land, and makes sense. I don't know that it really exists anymore. Well, it's just, technically, it's rent rent stabilization. Okay, not rent control.
1: And this all these all seem like uh, remnants of a bygone time.
0: The, well, World War II actually it was, oh, a, yeah. it was a way of dealing with you know the inflation after World War II after the GIs all come back with big fat pockets, yeah. so they wanted to make sure they didn't create some sort of demand spike. How long have you been in the city for? uh 87 87 yeah you came out here as a writer was that the plan i came no no one <laughs> no one surely no one has that plan oh I, 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 <laughs> you
1: are wrong sir i mean it depends i suppose it depends on what sort of writing you're doing i mean I, you know it, writing brought me out here from the standpoint of i wanted to get a job at a magazine
0: oh okay just, well yes yeah, sure yeah. i um i came out to new york to live with my girlfriend and because new york was the cool city next to i went to college at vassar in poughkeepsie and so you we would duck down here every weekend or two and and hang out in 19 early 80s new york yeah which was super cool so in i went back to texas in 85 and then came back here in 87 thinking this is the place i wanted to live i mean you did come here at a time where it was slightly more realistic to
1: (laughs) try to survive in the city as a creative type
0: yeah, totally. I mean, <laughs> I had a job that would paid seven fifty an hour, yeah. and I was pretty okay. Yeah, like I mean, in not great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Third Street, right next to the Hell's Angels. What Was the plan early on? Um, I didn't the plan. Like, <laughs> you keep coming back to this word. Yeah, I, I, don't I mean,
1: really... you know, we've all we 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 all at the at the very least we all have some sort of like.
0: Let me put it this way: you don't you don't move to New York if you don't have some kind of romantic ideal, right? It is true. I did want to be an artist of some kind. Um, I was taking, I was doing a grad graduate work in performance studies, which was sort of the anthropology of performance. Okay. So I probably thought I'd be a playwright, or yeah. um, you know, some sort of cool avant-garde director, performance art guy, um, or or maybe I would go into politics, which is also another form of performance art. And I wound up. Going out of graduate school and editing textbooks, hmm. and that sounds like a nightmare job. It was good. I mean, it really taught me about they, they were math textbooks, oh. so that really taught me a lot about being precise with language. Yeah, and having to do interesting, weird tasks like, um, like having to, you know, describe what a divisor is using only words in the sixth grade level, mm. and it has to fit in this box in the teacher's edition. Wow. So it has to be not only a certain number of words, but a certain number of characters. And and it was really kind of, you know, those kinds of tasks were thrown at us all the time. So I think that was good for me as a writer.
1: I, I hear stories about people, um, I mean, you know, I moved out here and I, I lived in some, some really dumpy dumps. But I, I hear stories about people who, like, move into, like, monasteries or something because that's the only thing they can afford. And this seems like the linguistic equivalent to that of, like, what is the most difficult Thing I can possibly conceive of in terms of like t- describing the I mean the kind of the abstract idea of trying to describe uh math
0: in words and then on top of that having a very limited space to do it in limited space and limited vocabulary because yeah. sometimes I would be editing a, f- a sixth grade math textbook and sometimes an eighth grade math textbook so you'd have a different tool set you were supposed to use to, because um, even when you're writing a teacher's edition, you're only supposed to use words that the students at that level know. That so the that, teacher would relay to the students. Right. And partly because they don't want the teacher to think about it at one, with one set of conceptual tools and linguistic yeah. tools and then try to have to translate it to the um, to the students. Where was your own math knowledge at that point? Not, you know, I didn't take any math in college. I think so it was I was about I at think, a sixth grade level. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I totally lied uh, when at, during the job interview, yeah. but I was—I um, didn't take any math or English classes in college. Huh. I wasn't into those things. I figured I had already done those for like twelve years or eleven yeah. years, and so I wasn't interested in doing them. I took a super random kind of classic liberal arts. I took some Japanese and some post-revolutionary yeah. Russian lit, and I was a philosophy major, and I did electronic music. I didn't want to do anything. You pushed reality off for as long as possible in college. Yes, at least that practical yeah. reality. Yeah.
1: I kind of want to get back to this uh idea of I don't know maybe maybe you were half kidding about this but uh of the the two paths being something uh, performance art related or politics. Were, were you actually earnestly interested in getting into politics at that point?
0: Yeah, very much so. I um, my My parents were political apparatchniks from the 60s. They had sort of taken over their um, precinct in Texas back in the, I guess it was the late 60s, around the war. And and they had told me these stories, and in 1986, I said to them, uh, sort of fresh out of college, you want let's go do that now and we went to the precinct meeting after uh, a primary and we got ourselves sent to the county convention and then they pulled some and we did some voodoo and got me sent to the the texas state convention for the democratic party in 1986 as an observer or as a a delegate okay like that's how these things work like if you show up at the precinct house you just kind of like they just bump you up the ladder yeah. If you have something to say, I mean, I was a teacher yeah. at the time. Okay. So I think they, I mean, I was a substitute teacher, just like basically drinking a lot and yeah. occasionally teaching at my old high school. But saying you were a teacher in that particular moment yeah. in Texas politics, it was kind of like, oh good, this young, young man has come and he's wants to like, you know, be part of the party and like people don't want to be know county delegates like that's not fun
1: you know i've been to town hall meetings for for various reasons and you know and (laughs) this is gonna sound harsh but like you don't always get the cream of the crop when it comes to places like that you know i mean it's like you know these the people who uh, these are people who for whatever reason like i mean sure they have a drive and they have a passion but they also have a lot of free time to devote themselves to that
0: right there's a jury duty feel to it sometimes but
1: but even less but but there's less
0: of an obligation to do it yeah,
1: there's nobody threatening you, you know,
0: with jail time if you don't go to a town hall <laughs> right. meeting. Yeah, I mean, I I really enjoyed it, and I certainly met some some smart and interesting people who were yeah who, who knew a lot of cool stuff about the way about the way power works and in, in very yeah you know straightforward in, in those in those sort of like basic circumstances. How quickly did you get disillusioned to the idea of being a politician? Um, I don't know if I've ever if I got disillusioned. I, I did move to New York, where it was yeah. a whole other kettle of fish. Sure and... Cammany Hall, etc. Yeah, yeah. I mean, New New York wasn't a place where we're going to wander in with with bright eyes and and say, um, send me to your state convention. Yeah, they probably can't wear Birkenstocks to the state convention. (laughs) I don't know. Um, But, I mean, politics was, uh, you know, something I'm interested in, something that part of my family discourse, I guess you'd say. But... It wasn't really something, it wasn't a, a huge drive. Art yeah. was, making art was much more important to me.
1: So, so, so you moved out here, you got a, a you know, a, an okay job that paid you a living wage. When do you actually start really exploring those creative pursuits in the city?
0: So, when I was a, yes, when I was a textbook editor, I started writing a novel and I, I think I finished it. Um, I, I broke up with my girlfriend and moved to a. And I was living alone. And I came home every night and didn't. I suddenly, I had all this free time, and all this misdirected energy. So and I. And you were drinking, as he mentioned before. Yeah, and so I just started like writing this. Um, writing this crazy science fiction novel about a sort of shape shifting okay. kid in his, in his her lower twenties, yeah, in New York City, sort of a polymorph and both male and female and capable of changing his or her body around and i'll just say her from now on and and after i and i and i sort of rose up to the ranks a little bit in the math textbook thing i was doing some software design for Mm. them and i wound up being a kind of like young executive and then they um stepped on too many toes and got fired but got let go with some money and so i had like a year's worth of money because i didn't i didn't spend much money yeah and I had, like, a year's worth of money um, between my savings and my severance. And I said, well, I've got that novel. Hmm. I'm going to sit down at my computer from 9 to 5 every workday and try to um, and and write a really good query letter, try to get an agent, write another novel. And all those things worked out. You were, what, 23, 24 at the time? No, I'm old by now. Okay. Um, I'm going to say 30. 30, okay. You, you were a
1: ripe old 30. I'm still impressed by your drive to sit down and turn writing a book into a full-time job. Not everybody has that in them.
0: Yeah, but it was maybe 10 years before I was actually supporting myself purely through novel writing. I was also, you know, I was doing freelance stuff as well. Yeah. I wrote uh, Choose Your Own Adventure Goosebumps. Wow. I wrote some Powerpuff Girl books. Um, I ghostwrote a legal thriller for a lawyer whose name you would recognize because he was part of one of the most famous cases of the last century.
1: Is it uh, David Schwimmer or John (laughs) Travolta? (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) One of those, yes. Uh, That that is a world that... that I I, I know a few people who do ghostwriting, and, and I've always had this sort of weird, vicarious desire to, to do that. It sounds like it could either be a lot of fun or completely miserable, and I suppose that, that depends on the person for whom you are
0: ghostwriting. I, what I like about ghostwriting is it's like driving someone else's fancy car. Yeah. Like, on the one hand, you get to go really fast. You get yeah. to do crazy stuff you wouldn't do in your own car. On the other hand, you don't actually, you know, it, it's not, it's never going to be your car. Yeah. And and if and if you wreck it, it's not really your problem. <laughs> I mean, like you, and you don't want to, and and like, you don't want to be too good at uh, at writing a ghostwriting book. You don't want to write like the best novel ever, yeah, because then you would feel dumb for you feel you'd feel suckered that your your own name wasn't on it. So you want to do a sort of workmanlike job. I think it's really good for it was good practice. What's the process for that like? Is it really? Is it? uh, Do they just kind of tell you the stories and then you collate them into a book? Um, it was a it was a, basically a crime drama it was a who done it okay I actually changed who did it from the original concept uh because I thought it was just kind of flat yeah okay
1: so it was it wasn't a uh it wasn't a an autobiography that you're ghostwriting you're ghostwriting a novel yeah it okay. was a
0: it was a, a courtroom procedural.
1: Yeah. okay so so you were very much in the uh Grisham yeah ballpark
0: yeah I watched a lot of um Watched a lot of Law and Order and read yeah. a lot of Grisham.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, so you were so you were doing your own stuff, and you also kind of fell into this world of being able to actually write professionally. Yeah. What um, so what did those first two books that you were working on? Did those actually go anywhere?
0: Yes, they were published. That's yeah. Polymorph and yeah. Fine Prey. They were published by uh, Penguin. Yeah. Uh, Penguin Rock was the imprint. And, I don't know, they had uh, print runs of 5,000, and sure. I don't think they ever had a second printing. And That
1: probably felt like a victory in and, oh, and yeah, of itself, yeah. right?
0: No, it was great. And they were mass market originals, and they yeah. had pretty interesting looking covers. And a couple people wrote me fan letters, and I, you know, and they just sort of sunk into the great mass of <laughs> mass market yeah. uh pa- science fiction paperbacks at some point
1: i have to imagine to some degree when when you're as prolific as as you are that you know you you can't um you, you can't be too precious about any one single book right i mean well, it's pretty precious about them yeah well the, the first providers. two sure but then but then you you know certainly you you get to a point i mean if you were uh like Donna Tartt, for example, who's written all oh, yeah, of like yeah, yeah, two yeah. or three books or in her in, in her entire career. Well, that's um, the
0: problem of having your first book being a mess. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. Whereas, I mean, I, I look back on them. I mean, I look back on my first book, especially. I think the second one's pretty cool. The first one I look back at pretty much the way I look back at my first relationship. Yeah. Which is, you know, with a certain amount of embarrassment, yeah. but also some remembered excitement and oh thankfully you can't go back and and reread your first relationship <laughs> oh my god i don't think i could go back and reread my first book either yeah you, have,
1: you haven't you haven't revisited them at all
0: it's been a while now. yeah but you did you did at some point yeah i mean i don't know when the, i mean that would be interesting i don't i don't know if i ever have yeah like i mean i'm sure i've read it when it when it appeared on you know like when I got my first author's copy, I probably sat down and read it. But yeah. you're just gonna find typos. I don't even know if sure. I did that. <laughs> I think Penguin would do a pretty good job cleaning those up. I would hope. <laughs> There's gonna be one typo, yeah, and that's all it takes to yeah. to gut you like a fish. When so you kind of went book. straight into to sci-fi. Your, your first book was. Oh yeah, that was all I was really interested in as a yeah. kid and as a as a young reader and as a as somebody who talks about books. Yeah, I mean it's only it's only in my middle years that I've actually started to care about other stuff. It just, you know, it's, it's sci-fi is such an interesting route to go down just because,
1: you know, when you talk about like real pulp writers, you know, you start to think of like, like your Kilgore Trout or something. I I suspect that science fiction, because it's something that so many people write and the people who are successful write so many of them that it's a really hard place to get noticed.
0: That's true. And I was, but I really did in a funny way. I liked being kind of a, a feeling like a pulp writer and writing yeah. fast and writing a lot yeah there was something kind of there's something that felt for lack of a better word kind of muscular about it yeah and just like banging out those words and banging out those plots and I think it was I think it's a good way to learn how to write is to write a lot and to and to actually get it published and have editors look at it and say things and readers look at it and say things and so I mean my my third book evolution's darling was much more uh, was much fancier. It came out from four walls, eight windows, which is much more of a lit- which was much mm-hmm. more of a literary house, and and it got reviewed in all these places that, you know, I that my first two books wouldn't dream of being reviewed in. Yeah. And so there was so there was a, an entirely different experience. It was a much smaller house again, like three thousand print run, never printed again. Um, but it was optioned for film and. Yeah. So so there was a kind of there was also kind of a a more literary experience there
1: was there a change in your approach between 2 2 and 3 i mean were you were you sitting down and taking more time with the writing process no
0: i was just writing and you know, probably less time i was but i was writing, i was doing more experimental things yeah i mean the first two books are both single point of view and evolutions darling is pretty whack like you're reading some faulkner at the time there's oh god no (laughs) the i think the odd numbered chapters are from two different main character point of views and are in the past tense and then there was these present tense intermediary chapters which were from like random characters like like someone watching them like a like a, a customs official watching them go through a you know, a border control site. But it was actually a, a customs AI that yeah. gets crashed by the, one of the weird things they're carrying and has to be, like, rebu- rebooted and lose all loses all of its Turing points. And so, like, everything was this sort of, like, I'm going to create this crazy little microcosm just for five pages. Yeah, You know, every other chapter was like that.
1: Were you sort of being experimental for the, the sake of being experimental? Or did it seem like the book required that kind of shifting point of view?
0: Um... Well, certainly the former, yeah, <laughs> I mean it it did it was okay because the book was that book is about an artist or an AI who becomes an art dealer yeah and um, and so there was very it was a lot about the gallery system hmm. and just the um I, I was I was living with an artist at the time and or I just lived finished living with an artist. And so there was a whole bunch of stuff about the way galleries work and about yeah. the way value gets imputed, it's sort of the arbitrariness of yeah to, the to art objects, world, yeah. and that was sort of alongside this idea of artificial intelligence as as being something. Basically, if you're an artificial tel- intelligence in that world, you have a Turing level, and once you get to one as your Turing level, you are a person, and you have all kinds of personhood mm. stuff you can do, and you can you have autonomy and before then you don't. And so I was trying to do something about like what is art and what is a person.
1: Again, you're dealing with a lot of really sort of big, heavy, abstract ideas there. At what point does that actually get boiled down into, you know, it, insofar as this actually was a narrative, at what point does it get boiled down into that? It sounds like something that you'd probably been carrying around in some form or another for a while.
0: Um, well, I was doing, I was a philosophy major in the early 80s. Yeah. Of course, there was lots of stuff going on about AI. Yeah. I mean, I think that's like Vassar, at least, was just starting their AI major. Mm-hmm. And it was at one point possible for me to leap over to the, you know, do a few more classes on the computer side of things and yeah. get a degree in AI. Uh, but I went to like one of those classes and I just hated everybody in it. Like, they there was just like the room had like, Terrible fluorescent lighting, and it was in this building that was full of machines. And I didn't like anybody there. And they all had flowchart rulers, and I just, I just didn't like. What does that mean? The odd flowchart rulers. This kid in front of me, on like the first day of class, he was, he had like a like those one of those rulers, in the olden days, yeah, to do flowcharts. You had, you had a ruler that had like a stencil in it, like a yeah, but I mean, like, what is that?
1: How does that define a person?
0: <laughs> well, he was drawing a clown with all the shapes of the okay. flowchart ruler, okay. and it, and it made me just incredibly angry i just
1: thought you were like you know you know those flow chart ruler types <laughs> you know what i mean right uh, that those sounds people. like pocket protectors which is not yeah. what i mean
0: because i mean my dad was a uh, my dad worked for nasa so yeah. we had pocket protectors around and t-squares and oh god yes yeah um but but you know i i just so i didn't go into ai because i just had a bad reaction to computer science departments but i was interested in that stuff and 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 um you know wrote my thesis on Wittgenstein, which yeah. is related in some ways. Okay some interesting vague ways. Yeah. So all that all that stuff was still kicking around. But this is but this is still like Evolution Starling is still a pretty there's an assassin in it. There's a there's some gunfights and some spaceships and yeah. some, some cool stuff like that going on. So I I've always tried to write um uh the uh, a friend of mine once said one of the best compliments I've ever gotten is you write page turning novels of ideas hmm. and I do like try to exist on the you know the pulp writer combined with the philosophy major. Yeah.
1: at <laughs> what point do you start writing for a younger audience? When do you kind of
0: cross over into that YA? Territory? So that was after five books. I then wrote a big two part space opera called Risen Empire. as As you do (laughs) then yes and that was actually the least desultory of my novels in terms of sales it had a lot of foreign sales it was a Mm. it sold a lot um but at the same time when everything else was you know all those those other books were just not selling and i found myself uh and i got an idea for something called midnighters which was um, it's about these kids who live in a town where there's 25 hours in the day, and one of them is just rolled up really tight, and no one sees it unless you're born on the stroke of midnight, and then everyone else freezes, mm. and you get to walk around and do stuff. Yeah, and that just seemed like a you know a quintessentially young adult kind of idea. Sure. I mean, when you're 27, staying up till midnight is not very exciting or interesting. Yeah, and it's probably just a bit you know s- silly to, yeah. to think about that, but it seemed cool to you know to me. As something that for for like fourteen year olds or thirteen year olds that is
1: interesting. I mean that's that's a that's a thing that I haven't thought about in in a while about you know the um yeah the exci- just the, the excitement of staying up
0: past your bedtime. Yeah, well I, mean, I remember sneaking out of my house at night. Yeah, like in, in in suburban Texas, you could walk around and it was and and like not midnight, like even eleven o'clock, it was completely quiet and it was like you owned the world. Yeah, and there was nothing else there except a few cats and dogs. And, and you were like in this, you're like, you had your own world, basically, your own secret hour. So, and I wrote Midnighters and it was way more successful. And Mm -hmm. I got more interesting and interested fan mail with more exclamation points. And it was just super exciting. Um, Is, is the process, is there much of a shift
1: when, when you're thinking about an entirely different audience?
0: you know i the other day i was in this big room with uh with you know doing a book event and the kids and the adults had sort of self-segregated hmm. and so all the kids were on one side and all the adults were on the other side and i just did a little quick quiz i said how many of you are learning a foreign language and about 80% of the kids and 10% of the adults and then I said, "How many of you have written poetry or song lyrics in the last month? Ditto. You know, how many of you are have made up, made up slang mm-hmm. in the last week? All the kids had none of the adults. How many of you call your friends by nicknames? A few of the adults, but mostly kids. Like, in every measure of, uh, ling- you know, engaging in language, creating language, hmm. um, learning languages, and just being generally." plastic with your brain yeah when it comes to words and enjoying the process yeah and loving it and and being and engaging it the kids did were all doing it mm. the teenagers were all doing it the adults were only a few of them were probably the science fiction readers <laughs> but um it was so and it was that was my that was me realizing exactly why i write for teens because they're so they have they're so plastic when it comes to language and they love you know, wordplay and idiolect and dialect and future, you know, lexi- lexicons yeah. and just crazy slang and all that stuff is is something that they engage with. So it's not it's not quite the same
1: as the process of trying to write a uh, a math problem in a small
0: box. <laughs> right. Um. Yeah. Although you know, creating slang can be a very technical and yeah. specific process. You have to.
1: I feel like, as somebody who's never done that, I would. My natural inclination would be to approach
0: that audience with a certain set of constraints. Right? Um, yeah, which is what everyone asks me when yeah. when they say, "What's the difference between YA and adult?" Because you've written both, and they always say, "What are the things you can't do?" Yeah, in in teen fiction, and of course they mean like drinking beers and having sex and yeah. swearing. All of which you can do in teen fiction. I
1: I noticed I was reading your book. I was like, I've not read a YA thing in a while, and like, there's some pretty coarse language in
0: there. Not so much the sex, but uh, she drops a couple of maybe S bombs. Yeah, that's true. No, totally. Um, so so there isn't. Well, I think the uh, as somebody once joked. I can't remember who exactly. Um, the two things you can't do in YA are bestiality and boredom, and if you must do one, bestiality. <laughs> But um, but don't, don't quote me on that. Um. <laughs> so yeah, to me, writing for teenagers isn't so much about the constraints yeah. as the liberations that you have because your audience is so linguistically engaged. But that's now. That's you having done it for a while. Not only having done it for a while, but having
1: actually engaged with the people, right? The, you know, the the right. teens who read it, um the process must have been very different the first time you sat down and decided that that's what you were going to do.
0: That is true. And I'm, I mean, I guess probably midnighters are pretty tame in terms of, you know, sex and drugs and rock and roll, but they don't. um, But I was still, I I still felt freed in some ways about Mm. having my, like, I remember my kid, you know, when we were, okay. When I was a teenager, me and my friends would get hooked on a word or on a, you know, on a, like, we said heinous to mean bad. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, you, you have your own... Just basically, idiolect was very yeah. important to us. It was very in-group, out-group, and it was very much like we spent a whole year saying, you know, this word code, all the time. Code words, almost. Yeah. And and that sort, of, that sort of came back to me when I was writing Midnighters, even though I hadn't necessarily interacted with any YA fans yet. And so I think I, I very much um, hmm. got that part of it from the start without without anyone telling you to do it or without anybody or without any feedback? I feel like we still haven't kind of got gotten to the heart
1: of what 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 the difference really is between writing something for adults. I mean it clearly there must be, right? I mean the fact that like I know there's some you know, there's some back and forth and sometimes something that was written for adults will go into YA and, and vice sure. versa. Um, but surely there must be something about the process that's different.
0: Oh, I mean, there's a lot of technical things. I think I think point of view has to be very close in um, in YA. The Cl- whole close meaning. The whole you know, like a, you read an adult book and and it'll start that summer. Yeah. You know, that that summer was so splendid i remember those rich sun drenched days and you know that's sort of like looking back at something elegiacally 15 yeah. years later yeah. and knowing what your childhood was then or knowing what that young adulthood or whatever you're looking back from a from a from a future time and that's a perfectly valid way for literature to work but it sucks for ya okay ya has I'm, to cause be because i'm thinking immediate. of like louisa may alcott there maybe <laughs> i mean there's some precedent for that surely yeah, but teenage—you know—books for teenagers about teenagers should be about the teenage experience as it is lived by teenagers, okay. and not as it is looked back upon by okay. adults. And so that's just there's just a sense of immediacy there. Yeah, close POV. Which, oh, I mean, a lot of it's written in present tense. Yeah. Um, which is neither here nor there, but it, it does. Yeah, there's some sense that, yeah. that that is in a more immediate tense. So that's that's a big thing. I mean, obviously, another thing is that teenagers, as characters are, you, you can believe them changing. Mm. Like if you're writing about an irascible, horrible 80-year-old man, or even, let's say 53-year-old man like myself, I'm not going to be any less of an asshole five yeah. years from now than I am now. But but it, but a 16-year-old can really change a lot. Okay, so maybe Ebenezer Scrooge isn't the perfect template. <laughs> yeah, you, you, but, but in real life, we all know Ebenezer Scrooge went back to being his sure. horrible self. Sure, like two weeks later, just like yeah. he would in a sitcom, and um, so so I think you know the, the the changeability and the plasticity of characters, and you hmm. know, the, and just the, the, there's always some hope in YA, just because because you're unformed and you have your whole life ahead yeah. of you, theoretically, yeah. And also, I think identity is a is a huge theme in YA. Yeah, I mean, who are you? How do you fit into this world? How did the world get this way? How did they make it this way? You know, that's there's a reason why sophomores and philosophy have the same root. Yeah, which is that they're both questioning things. There's a reason, there, and
1: and there uh, there's a reason why uh, post-apocalyptic scenarios are so popular with those audiences. I mean, this this book, in a sense, is that. I mean, it, it has some parallels to it, right? There's a there's a an incident that happens that's, that's unexplained. It does feel kind of like a post-apocalyptic wasteland and that's a pretty good way to really get to the heart of
0: alienation. Yeah. I mean, it's, I was reading a lot of, um, like I said, I went to college in Poughkeepsie, yeah. at Vassar and Poughkeepsie is very much a, a city that like a small city in upstate sort of hard scrabbly New York that has, you know to some extent at various times fallen on hard times. Um, Rust Belt, it, yeah, yeah. It, it was a. it was originally an ice town, like they brought ice down from Canada and floated it down the Hudson, and they would keep it in ice houses in P- Poughkeepsie and then take it out over the winter to sell I mean, over the summer to sell to New Yorkers. But the refrigerator industry really killed the ice right. market, exactly. Yeah. So, this, so somebody invented technology, yeah, you know. Who, that you never thought of, you never heard of, and suddenly it just takes yeah. out your, you know, takes you out. And so, and I've always thought that was interesting, like this idea of just a town getting killed by something like that. And there was another thing that happened in '86, like right after I got out of college, which was the I don't know how to say this word because it's Portuguese, but it's the Guayana, uh incident. And basically, small town, sort of a Poughkeepsie-like town in Brazil, that had a there was a um, radiotherapy center. Mm-hmm and it closed down but they didn't take all the machines out and one of the machines was stolen by like scrap thieves who took it to a scrap dealer and sold it to him and he took it apart and his and and they found this you know, strange glowing dust inside <laughs> and and the kids played with it and it uh, and it was taken to the neighbors and people p- came and paid to see it uranium or plutonium uh, um <laughs> it was probably plutonium yeah so the um So in the end, 259 people and 42 houses were contaminated, like 30-something houses were destroyed, cars, buses, Hmm. the wing of the hospital, doctors who treated the people who came in, you know, lost fingers and stuff. And only about five people died, but that's a lot. Yeah, And it was just this sort of strange – again, a strange technology, comes to town and just – and just shits all over everything and and it's just this and it's just this amazing story and so so spill zone is kind of that like this something happened something was brought along and dumped in this town and it's changed the laws of physics and you know basically the people are gone and and you can't go in there and it's scary and horrible and so i was i was sort of combining that set of Mm. That set of concerns, and also, you know, 9-11 happened not too long before I started writing the script. Oh, it's it's it, you've been working on it for that long. Yes, I started in two thousand six. Wow. Um, what, I, was it a was it a comic from the beginning or? Yeah, it was always a graphic novel. Yeah. I uh, because of the conversations between, uh, Addison's sister, yeah, um, Lexa and her creepy doll, yeah, Vespertine, without. Without the graphic novel format, it would have been hard for those conversations to happen without Addison knowing about yeah. them, without changing point of view. I appreciate that, though.
1: I, I appreciate that the uh, the medium was chosen to reflect the story that you wanted to tell, not yeah. just like, you know, uh, and I'm sure, sure plenty of, you know, very talented people have done this. But, hey, comics are popular. It's time for me to do a comic.
0: Right. Well, very much uh, the reason why it took 10 years is because... I very soon realized I didn't know how to do comics. Yeah. So I, I sort of did a workaround to that, which is I um, I sold the graphic novel rights to Uglies, my most popular series, to Del Rey Manga, and said there's one proviso, which is that I get to work with the writer oh, writing cool. the script. Yeah. So I outlined it. Devin Grayson, who's a great comics writer of, of some renown, um, wrote a script, and I went back and forth so I you know editing that and and asking her why she did things the way she did them and and then went through pencils inks and colors so basically I tricked someone into paying me to learn how to write comics and then after that process which was some years I said okay now I can go back and actually write this thing
1: I'm sure they were more than happy to have you involved in that part of the process
0: yeah no it was it wasn't a hard sell but it was it was, a, it was a nice thing to be able to do. What it was, was the to um, be able to leverage success in one media yeah. to another?
1: When, when, what was the, uh, I mean, what was kind of the, 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 the most surprising thing? What was, what was the biggest difference when it came to the way that that was being plotted out versus writing one of your books? I mean, is it, is it similar to writing a, a, a play or a screenplay or some kind of script?
0: I've never actually written okay. other scripts. Um, I'm usually someone who gets to where I'm going through a lot of words, like and through writing, I find mm-hmm. I write my way out of problems and 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 that's how I find my voice and my character's voice and stuff like that. So it was very unlike anything else I've yeah. done. Um, there was a lot of pairing back of language. Sure. there's this horrible realization I had when i you know when I started getting Alex's work and like seeing how beautiful his artwork is. And then suddenly I realized every word I put on the page is covering up some of that art. Yeah. And that's just awful. Yeah. (laughs) And then my, you know, so I was like, okay, my character is going to be as as taciturn and as spare as they can be because this is really about, I mean, she's a photographer, which is another reason I wanted to do it as a graphic novel is that she is somebody who's dealing with images herself and that's how she's exploring the loss of her town.
1: So was it it just kind of serendipity then that it it happened to be uh, a story where... I mean, there, you know, dialogue isn't really necessary because she's solitary through a lot of it, that those things just
0: lined up perfectly. Yeah, I mean, it seemed like the right way to tell the story. And also she's, you know, she's a working class girl from Poughkeepsie yeah. with kind of no one to talk to because her yeah, sister, sister has, doesn't talk, yeah. has become silent since the spill, Yeah, uh, except for the weird psychic conversations with her doll. And Addison herself is kind of cerbic and tough as nails and doesn't want to say a lot she what she's doing is processing the loss of her hometown and the loss mm. of her parents and effectively the loss of her family yeah because all she has left is this little silent sister and she's doing it through images you know by being a photographer and taking pictures of these weird creatures and strange yeah. effects and trying to figure out like what happened to my town
1: you're you're taking some of that that um experience in the art world that you had as well i mean you know there's this very there's just a very fascinating world of private art collectors and that that plays a role in it i mean there's this woman and and these rooms that she walks into with things that no one's supposed to see yeah
0: i mean i do i i was always fascinated by um how collectors define art yeah like somebody like if somebody there's a famous collector who has like Saatchi or something like that when they buy you every other piece that they didn't buy becomes more valuable because suddenly you have that imprimatur and you're buying something that's yeah. in the same collection as someone else yeah and there was even one case where my uh my artist girlfriend was telling me about a time about like one of these collectors who was so famous he didn't pay for his art anymore and you just wanted him to take your <laughs> stuff because then it be was, was yeah. part of his collection. And and so I so I kind of like the idea that Addison has been guided in her exploration of the spill zone by this collector, hmm. because this collector is saying, I want another picture of this, or yeah. I, I want more of this. And so her understanding of this, of her hometown since the spill has actually been guided by someone else's aesthetic taste.
1: There's, there's a, an interesting idea of uh, scarcity in there as well. I mean, you know, it's... In a time where, you know, we all have uh, uh, cameras on our phones and we can take infinite pictures and share them infinitely, you know, the idea that she's taking these photos that no one
0: else has access to is right. is kind of an alien one. Right. And that they're kind of illegal as well. Yeah. They're, they're not only um, they're not only mysterious and rare, but they're kind of like you have to show them quietly to someone. Like, yeah, like there's like a keypad in the collector's room where she keeps Addison's work. To sub, because you wouldn't want your cleaner snelling in there or the cops coming yeah. in there.
1: W- was it was it clear from the beginning that, that this was going to be a series? Um, yeah, well, I mean,
0: it wasn't... It's only going to be two books.
1: Okay, but it's clearly paced in a, in a way where, you know, I mean, obviously there's no resolution at the end, but, you know, you do, in a sense, sort of set it up as a bit of a mystery novel. It reminds me of... Um, you know and, and actually I didn't make this connection until you mentioned the uh, the plutonium um, you know of, of when that happens when this you know this when when you have to figure out what's going on with this this group of people and you trace it back to the plutonium dust I mean there's no there's no clear connection to be made me- immediately and all of these uh, stories that you hear about like pathogens whether it's um, you know, Typhoid Mary, or uh, trying to get to the bottom of um, you know the, the rise of like of of HIV. Like it, there, there's a built-in mystery novel there, right? Or, or um,
0: there's a was... sense of a patient zero. Yeah, or what, the what ghost well. This? Did
1: you ever read the ghost well? I think it was um, maybe malaria, where they sort of uh, they they they
0: trace this disease back to
1: a specific origin.
0: Oh wow! Well, yeah, I mean. There's, I mean, you were talking about pacing earlier. Yeah. It was originally probably the 220 pages you read were about 68 pages of script. And my wise editors at um, that's handy at first second said, you need to stretch this out. And I doubled it. And they said, okay, good. That was good. That was good. I'll double it again. And so, but that doesn't mean actually, yeah, you'd think that would be, Oh, good. Less yeah. writing. I just make more pages. But writing graphic novels, you still have to do an awful lot besides the dialogue. What does stretching it out mean? You know, I mean, you're not you're not adding more. Are you adding more text? in? More pages. No, but you're. But and but you are lots more text in terms of telling the artist what to do, okay. and 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 guiding the story visually, but not much more dialogue.
1: Because the relationship, you know, the relationship between writers and artists when it comes to comics when it's not somebody you know like an auteur doing both things is right. it differs very much from project to project but it sounds like you were really you, you played a role in actually pacing it out and you were
0: you were letting him know what pages everything kind of fell on oh yeah i, I i'm very much um into putting everything on the right page because i control freak yeah kind of a control freak oh. and um and i do and I do like my sort of two-page spreads and, and the big sure. moments. And you have to be able to like – because a two-page spread has to be an even page yeah. and an odd page in yeah. that order. And so you have to set them up. And yeah. I like those reveals. And, I, and also the fact that we were doing it as a webcomic and showing every six pages. Um, so every six pages is a beat of some kind. Mm. Now, Alex Puvion, my, my wonderful uh, artist, will sometimes add another couple pages to one of the six-page scenes. So – he was stretching things out as well yeah. and he does change things and even occasionally writes dialogue so i'm a control freak but at the same time he's also yeah. changing stuff but but this does sort of get back to that idea of uh of, of setting parameters for yourself and oh i love yeah that's what i love about it it's like yeah. writing a, um you know it's like writing a sonnet or something yeah. you have to you have to be aware of these pages and you don't want to like you can't if you're at the top of a you know, an even-numbered page, that is to say a page on the left, you you can't have something that's going to spoil it that's on the next page yeah. because that next page is visible because they're looking at two. Um, so, so you're constantly solving problems. Yeah, there's very much... There's visual problems. And there's camera movement problems. You know, like, it's sort of like not wanting to break the 180 rule. Yeah, And there's another thing, which is you want your scenes to change in terms of things like scale. Like if you have a, one scene where it's two people trapped in a small room or in a closet and they're talking to each other. The next scene, you want to get them on the roof mm. and to have a vista. And if there's a bunch of scenes in a row where it's night and kind of dark, then you want to like get a light source in there so that you don't have a bunch of dark, muddy pages in a row. Yeah. And so it's all the sort of problems you would have in a in a film. Where... That's just taking into account
1: uh, the visual aspects
0: where you don't have to do that at all if you're just writing right. prose. Right. Right, yeah, you can you can have a whole prose novel be set in a fairly dark environment, and it yeah. doesn't become muddy and and boring. For and the a lot same of the
1: Japanese novels, like that uh, <laughs> woman in the dunes, that <laughs> are literally
0: it's... like under a pit of sand. Right. Yeah, and I and I do, but I do like having those constraints. I mean, I like creating a lot of contrast. Yeah. I you know I don't. I'm not one of those people who thinks every sentence should be beautiful. I think like one sentence out of twenty should be beautiful, and they should. And there should be maybe one or two per page, and then maybe every twenty pages there should be a page where every sentence is beautiful. And that doesn't necessarily work in a what's
1: ostensibly a script, right? Because those those sentences don't make their way to the reader unless they're
0: oh right, dialogue. no, no, I'm talking, I'm talking, yeah, but even it, it does apply to dialogue, but yeah. it, but the contrasts you're doing in a script are different. They have to do with light yeah. and scale, and you know, intimacy versus pulled back vista, um, even things like color, you know, there's. One one of the great things, uh, Hilary Sycamore, who did the colors in Spill Zone, I originally wanted the real world to be black and white, and when they went into the Spill Zone, for it to be in color. So, Wizard of Oz. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wizard of Oz or Secret Garden, Magic Garden. Okay. Um, there's a whole bunch of movies yeah. like that. But there was a... The, the problem is that we I wound up spending a lot more time in the real world, because it's more about the effects of the zone on the society around it mm-hmm. and, and the economics and all that stuff so I didn't want I didn't really want a, my first graphic novel to be like 80% black and white so we were like okay let's just do regular colors for the regular world and wild amazing turned up to 11 colors for the zone and we got this great colorist named Hilary Sycamore who totally nailed it and you know there, those scenes where Addison is especially in the, the hospital toward the end of the of book one the, the colors are just crazy like weird pastels and and overblown it's like peter max poster wildness when you're in the zone and, mm-hmm. and it's really normal character you know normal colors when you're in the real world do you,
1: are you somebody who needs to set uh constraints for yourself you know are you, are you somebody who works better with um almost like workshoppy ideas in order to kind of sit down and be productive
0: yeah no i much prefer constraints yeah I liked. I mean, I also was a composer, in like in high school. I went to an arts high school, and I did a lot of composition there. And music composer. Yeah, yeah. And I like, you know, fast. You do a a fast movement, then a slow movement, then a fast movement. They all have to have the same number of bars, and and you know all that stuff is really. That's where I prefer to go from when it comes to art.
1: It's interesting. I mean, in a way. And I'm sure that, you know, your father being, I guess, basically like a rocket scientist probably influenced this is, (laughs) is, uh, you know, you might not have been somebody who is, who had studied math, you know, since high school or or whatever, but um, you still have a mathematical mind.
0: Yeah, he was actually a computer scientist for NASA. Yeah, but he worked with rockets. (laughs) Right, right. I mean, he was, I mean, he was doing medical telemetry, but he was, you know, those computers back then were all about uh, constraints because every you know the computing power was so limited and everything was so expensive that every line of code you could cut out every yeah character of code you could cut out made everything faster and better yeah. and cheaper um, but yeah it was i mean i i think music and language are my two sort of starting points like my my undergraduate thesis was about Ludwig Wittgenstein and applying his sort of theories of language to a notation system invented by Giannis Zanakis, a Greek composer who is, and they're both completely Mm -hmm. mad. And so it was very, very much at the intersection of music and philosophy. Yeah.
1: Yeah, That's, that's very interesting of finding overlapping craziness. I mean, clearly if, you know, people are crazy, Different people are crazy in similar
0: ways. You know, maybe they're on something, right? Yeah, no. I, and there was a definite, there was like a, th- just a, this very specific relationship between this, Yanis uh, Gian- Sonakis's, not even a, not even a, a sorry, a, a composition system or a notation system that he even ever used. It was just theoretical. Yeah. And, and I was sort of comparing that to this theoretical language, perfect language conceived up by Wittgenstein. So, yes. <laughs> so <laughs> it's been a long, it, you know, it, it's been uh, yeah thirty odd years since I actually wrote this thing. So
1: yeah, I mean, it's 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 such an interesting departure from um, you know then then graduating and then writing pulp
0: science fiction. Yeah, but no. I no. mean Fine Prey, my second book, which is pretty pulpy, but at the same time it's about it's about a xenolinguist. Yeah. So it was very Wittgenstein influenced.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean it's it's interesting too. This is something I've always been, been fascinated with and this is something that um we discuss every so often at uh my job. You know, we do we do programming for events and you know, we we'll have things where we've got roboticists on stage and invariably somebody will always suggest you know what if we brought in so and so from the sci-fi world and I'm always fascinated by the way that 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 they interact with one another. You know where you know is it a mutual admiration society? Are are the people who are not hard science fiction but hard science people? Um, you know certainly there's some reverence for some sci-fi writers i mean you know uh you mentioned um what was it, it wasn't it wasn't the it wasn't asmos law of robotics it was uh oh, the, turing, the turing test right. um you know with i i suppose he is a scientist but it is kind of a science fiction idea there's certainly sure. some overlaps and certainly uh there's inspiration yeah well, a lot of a
0: lot of i mean a lot of science starts with thought experiments yeah because that's the cheaper way to start yeah. I mean you don't, you know you don't just start yeah. by building a cyclotron you have to conceive first so
1: and and you were you know you were you were talking about having these conversations about AI in in the 80s and like finally I mean I know it's been around in some form or another but like um, and, may, and certainly it's not AI the way we necessarily conceptualized it 30 years ago but AI is becoming ubiquitous in a way I mean, you know, we do all have some some form of artificial intelligence on our persons.
0: Yeah, there's there's well, there's lots of objects in our lives that are trying to predict what we want and what they can sell us, yeah. and, and what we're going to need next. Yeah, and and of course, I mean, predictive text is a really good example of that. Yeah, and yeah. sometimes i you know what I what I try never to do as a writer is let the predictive text. Change my mind, yeah. Because then I'm not writing the thing I wanted to write. I'm writing the thing everyone else wanted to write.
1: Yeah, it's funny though. I, I've you know I started I started doing something recently. Uh, uh, my girlfriend and I have a thing where every so often we'll just let the the predictive text do all of the driving, just see where it goes. <laughs> have you ever done that before? <laughs> no. That's a good thought experiment. Oh my god. To to just sort of um, I'll, I'll cycle through it until it feels like a complete sentence because it's always yeah it's always trying to to sort of thread the needle and it's always trying to get to the end
0: sure i mean uh, there's an XKCD where he takes famous lines from movies yeah and goes all the way to the end and then lets predictive text take over yeah so it's like you know let me introduce you to yeah. my little sister <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah there was there was a thing there was a thing that came out today actually this will be like a month or two old by by the time this this airs but um there there's a group that's letting ai uh write scripts oh my god. so there are two like short movie scripts that i don't know i don't know like what the logistics of it are and i'm right. sure that there has to be some sort of human hand leading the process
0: sure no but yeah i mean the, the novels have been written by ai yeah
1: yeah it yeah i mean you know we we were talking about the uncanny valley before and that's i mean that that is interesting It it does feel like the sort of you know the idea of you know of like of of infinity or I, I i can't remember which uh which like greek philosopher it is but the idea of like having something forever the more you have Zeno. it yeah it sort of it grows into infinity and it
0: seems like we're see philosophy yeah majors come in handy
1: we're, we're getting to we're getting to a point where it's sort of like it feels like it's getting closer and closer
0: but there's a gap that it'll never yeah. quite well what's bridge. interesting to me about AI written poetry or scripts or novels all the ones I've read turn out to be kind of high modern like a bit arch yeah. and and um and kind of abstract and experimental yeah. they don't seem like the work of hacks yeah which is kind of what you to e- which without thinking very hard that's what you think it would yeah. you know that's what you'd expect is that it would be some sort of very predictable workman-like yeah drudge work like you know a very predictable say a romance or whatever and instead um and instead what you get is is like the sort of high modernism that's uh, beloved of the academy yeah but when you get something that reads like you know
1: you know ionesco or something i mean that's not that that that's a that's a mistake in the system right when it when when it's trying to write a a narrative, and it turns into you know a, a a comedy of the absurd, yeah, or or something sort of pinteresque and yeah. kind of like. It's not because it's doing a good job; it's because it's it's not doing a good job that that
0: happens. Right. Well, it's because a lot of modernists, or I mean, I'm not gonna use that overuse that word, but a lot of people, you know, of that era were trying to write things where the language wasn't owned, like yeah. pinter, pinter is about people who don't own their language but it but or mammoths but maybe
1: but maybe the, the you know maybe we're kind of looking at it the wrong way i mean maybe what ai is ultimately working for working towards is mundanity is is banality I mean, maybe that maybe when it writes something, it's just that's experimental really... mundanity. <laughs> yeah, but I but but again, I think like the the experiment, the, the, the you know, the absurdity in there is is a mistake in the system. That just means that it's not doing what it's supposed oh, to it's, be doing. It's not there, but yeah. it,
0: but it is funny that 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 broken derivative equals high modern. That's still yeah. that's still funny to me.
1: Yeah, and, and also and also, I mean, we're 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 just sort of like evolutionarily programmed to fill in the gaps, so if we're delivered a bunch of like dissonant ideas, our brains are gonna go to work just trying to to build a narrative. We're we're oh, gonna yeah, do a sure. lot of the heavy lifting for
0: No, it's like seeing the face on the Yeah, exactly in, in the uh plug. Yeah. You know, yeah. you you will immediately try to create some human yeah, yeah, yeah. meaning to anything that gets gets put in front of you. Which is which is why, you know, which is why dolls are scary. <laughs> <laughs> which is why everybody hates clowns. Yeah.
1: Uh yeah, the the doll the doll aspect is is an interesting one. Was that I mean it sounds I guess it sounds like that was part of the story from pretty close to the beginning, if that's what Yeah, well, drove I wanted, it to become a comic.
0: So so Samuel R. Delaney, science fiction writer, has this yeah. great quote, which is that science fiction is the is the form of literature where a setting is a character. Um like when you when you talk about science fiction books, you usually use the word where in your description. What's this it's in the society where it's this yeah, planet yeah, yeah, where yeah. it's the future where and you and the. Um, so I want. And what. In most of my. Sorry. And in most of my books, the places, the setting has an agenda of some kind. Like in Midnighters, mm. it's about the town where there's an extra hour. In Uglies, it's about a city that wants you to conform in a certain way. And The, so, the setting isn't incidental. Yeah. It's, it's, the setting is a, like a character, and characters yeah. have to have motivations and agendas and things they want from you. And so the zone I wanted the zone to have a voice, and vespertine is sort of the 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 voice of the zone. she's the doll that the little sister took out yeah and and that and, and has sort of been infected by or some for some reason in some freaky way is speaks for the zone so. who's whos who seems sinister but isn't necessarily a bad actor. It's hard to say um well, yeah, we don't know yet, yeah,
1: in book one, yeah. Stay tuned. We, we will learn. <laughs> is is book two? Book two is all all written.
0: Book two is all outlined. Yeah. Okay. Book two is two thirds scripted. Yeah. One third um, inked. And about half penciled.
1: But did you did you know <laughs> did you know the ending point when you started writing the book in earnest?
0: Not when I started writing book one. Yeah. But I no, I didn't really know the ending until, um, until. Well, I outlined all of book two, and then I didn't like the outline, and there was just something wrong with yeah. it. And I was in a car in Los Angeles going to see my movie agent to talk about it, and I was like, "Oh, he's gonna hate this. I better come up with a more Hollywood ending." Huh. And I'll keep the ending I have, but I'll, I'll I, a Hollywood ending. I'll give him the Hollywood ending. And I thought, and I thought, like like five minutes before I got to the CAA headquarters, I was like. Oh wow, that would be a good Hollywood ending. In fact, that would be a good just regular ending. Yeah. So I, uh, or I'm a huge hack. But I, the, the the more dramatic, more yeah. good ending didn't really come up until after I'd already started the script for the second book.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I guess maybe there's a reason why, uh, why the the Hollywood ending cliche exists. Maybe sometimes, <laughs> it, maybe sometimes it actually works out. Yeah, no, it it makes a lot more sense than this. You you go, Scott Westerfeld. Thank you so much to him for taking the time to do that. Really interesting conversation. Uh, good to talk about just being creative and moving to a city like New York, trying to find your place in the world. Uh, I'm still utterly fascinated by people who do ghostwriting. It's always been, uh, I don't want to say fantasy of mine, but uh, something that I just think would be super, super interesting to do. Um, also, always, you know, I, I know a lot of folks who have written YA books um, or are... are scene but um also always interesting to see how somebody makes their way over to to that space um thank you so much to him for doing that really really enjoyed that talk you can check out his latest book it's his first graphic novel uh, spill zone out on first second books right now i recommend it uh really really fun book like like pretty much everything first second puts out and um really uh realize it was not written for me but uh, gripping nonetheless Uh, so thanks to him thanks to Gina at first second for setting that conversation up thanks to you guys as always for listening to the show if you like the program please consider rating us on iTunes uh, or wherever it is you get your podcasts or if you've got a couple of uh, few extra cents to send our way consider supporting us over on Patreon we uh, are not running ads on the show at the moment so we're actually this is a, a money losing proposition believe it or not Uh, sometimes podcasts are money-losing propositions. Uh, So, you know, consider us uh, throwing a little bit of money our way, or uh, just consider uh, recommending the show to a friend if you enjoy the program. That would be very helpful as well. Uh, If you got any feedback, it's ariwellcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Tumblr. That's ariwellcast.tumblr.com. That is the first and best place to get all of your R.I.Y.L. related information. Like us on Facebook, and I think that's about all I got for this week. So stick around because we will be back just about this time next week with another episode of R.I.Y.L.